Hello everyone and welcome to the Manacast. Conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett and with me, as always, is Jonathan Cornford. G'day folks. Manacast is the podcast of an organisation called Managum. We're all about talking about the intersection of Christian faith with economics and ecology. Today, we're taking our lead from a little book I finished reading not too long ago. It's called The Biblical Vision of Sabbath Economics by a theologian called Ched Myers. John, you're the one who recommended me this little book, and you see it as somewhat foundational to what Managum does and what Managum's all about. How has it influenced you? Why did you recommend it to me? Yeah, well, um, one, because I think it's a, well, I reckon it's a pretty good little book. What, what did you think? Yeah, it was great. Very tight. Yes, yes, which I really love about it. Uh, and that sort of describes Ched's work a bit. So Ched is a a, a, um, a biblical scholar, um, and I first came across his work when I was living in a mission community in the in the middle of Melbourne uh, back in the early 2000s, late, late 90s, early 2000s. <clears throat> and Ched is um, he's a biblical scholar, but he doesn't work in in the academy. He's he's always been outside the system, and he comes from the the radical discipleship tradition where they they do things differently. Um, and the community that I lived in was quite influenced by that movement, the radical discipleship movement, and by Ched's work specifically. Uh, especially, he he wrote a very um, uh, well received commentary on Mark's Gospel. Um, and we used it a bit in in our work. We, we actually did a Bible walk around the city based on uh, of Mark's gospel uh, using some of Ched's work. Um, so I'd heard Ched speak a number of times back in those days and come across his work. And so when he released uh, this little book, some of which were articles I'd already read in other forms, um, it really uh, helped n- nailed something for me that we'd been forming over my time uh around um, Christian faith and its economic vision of life uh, and just said it really succinctly and well. And that sort of, that helped me move towards the, basically the ideas that led to the starting of Managum. And as you'll hear, the very fact that I I named uh, this ministry after an indigenous eucalypt, um, uh, indigenous to where I, I lived back then, that references the story of the manna in the wilderness uh, was basically all to do with Ched's tel- telling of that story. So yeah, he had quite a he had an important influence early on. And I'm now living in those lands where that eucalypt is native, uh, and it's fitting that as we come to this discussion of living in harmony with the land and understanding how economics and the land are integral to each other, we're going to take a moment to acknowledge the lands that we live and work on. I'm talking to you from Narm, the lands of the Wurundjeri Willem clan. And Narm covers approximately the area that's now Melbourne in Victoria. And it means place in Woiwurrung, the language of this region. Yeah, and I'm talking to you from Bendigo in central Victoria, uh, which is the lands of the Jarjawurrung people. And uh, this country that I'm living in is characteristically part of what's called a box ironbark ecology. So the the main uh, dominant eucalypts here are red ironbarks and uh, red box and yellow box tree uh, gum trees, uh, which is very different from down there in Melbourne, where where I was. So where I was when I started Managum, uh, and so the the Wurundjeri, the Wurundjeri uh, of the 
of that folk, the Waran part of their name is taken from the tree, the Eucalyptus fuminalis, which is what we in English call the managum. So that's the relationship between the two. It all comes together. We'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. And as we're talking, it strikes me, John, that even the fact that we're making this kind of acknowledgement uh, is all to do with the sort of stuff we're talking about today. Ancient Israel, which we're going to get into how they thought about their land and their place. In many ways, they got more connection to uh, a culture like the Wurundjeri and many other traditional cultures that had a very tangible sense of the land that they were on as a gift, a gift yes. from the creator, a gift that God taught them how to live on accordingly as a gift. And it's pretty apparent in what Ched's saying and in other writers that have talked about this, that the contrast with modern economics could hardly be more stark. Modern economics wrestles with how to pursue unlimited wants with limited means, and it doesn't really take any account of ecological limits or anything like that. It, it assumes a paradigm of limitless growth, continual growth. And it should also be said that some of the things we're talking about today, we've covered to some degree in other episodes. So episode 11, we talked about the economic vision of the church, and we gave a skeletal outline of some of this Old Testament stuff that we're going to dive into much deeper today. And in episode 19, we started getting into how was it the Christian Europe began to distance from this kind of economic outlook um, throughout that kind of modern period until now. So today, very much the focus is on that Old Testament vision of life cast by the, the law and the creation in the, in the first part of the Bible. And there's a lot in there, more than, more than we could possibly talk about today. And uh, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're sort of taking Ched's little, little book. Um, uh, it's called A Biblical Vision for Sabbath Economics. I think we'll just call it Sabbath Economics from here on in uh, as our sort of launching pad. Um, and it's, I think one of its great virtues is is, <laughs> is that it is a little book, and I, I really do value that more and more these days, a book mm. that's quick and easy to read. Um, so I do recommend it. But we're, we're not going to restrict ourselves to Ched's work. Um, so there's other people who have written very well about this stuff too. Um, for me, I particularly uh, have really valued uh, the writings of the of Hebrew Bible scholar Ellen Davis uh, and her book, Scripture, Culture and Agriculture, which is just wonderful unpacking of um, uh, what the Hebrew Bible has to say about the uh, about ecological and economic world. Um, I'll also think another person's stuff where I think is really good is uh, Christopher Wright, another um, Old Testament scholar. Um, have you come across any of his work, Jacob? Yeah, a little bit. I haven't read much, but he definitely comes up in my degree and that sort of thing. Yeah, he sort of, um, Christopher Wright sort of is to the Old Testament what N.T. Wright is to the New Testament um, for e <laughs> for evangelicals. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's sort of really helped to improve um, the evangelical reading of the Bible. Um, they say, Two wrongs don't make a right, but two rights do make a better reading of the Bible. Uh, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> yeah, and Ellen Davis, when I've come up around her stuff, is also really good. Yes, I, I and I, I really recommend her stuff. So they're, uh, they're the sorts of books that are going to underpin uh, the discussions we'll have and, you know, and I guess some of my own and, and your own reflections thrown in there as well, Jacob. Mm hmm for sure. And you can, it's somewhat hard to get a copy of the Ched Myers book in Australia. 
uh, from a little Google we did before this episode, you can go to the Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries website and you can email them and see if they'll send you a copy. It might be a bit tricky as they're based in US, um, but you can have a go. Otherwise, it seems like ebook copies are available on the Internet Archive if you just sign up and Scribed um, seems to have a copy as well. But otherwise, it's hard to get a copy in Australia. Yeah, uh, I certainly recommend it. So why don't we kick off, Jacob? You, you've just recently read the book. Um, why don't you um, start us off on, on some of the uh, how we get into this whole idea of Sabbath economics? Yeah, for sure. So he doesn't spend much time on it in the book. Um, he wants to move on to mostly spends time in the law. And then in the New Testament, we're going to talk not, not about the New Testament today. But I do love how he gets into some word nerdery um, because that's close to my heart. And he says in that first chapter, the first creation account, everything in the world is tov. It's good. That's the way we're normally translating it. But uh, he points out, along with other scholars that you can read, that good is hardly an adequate translation. It's this sense of bounty, this sense of pleasing, joyful, beauty, gladness. Myers suggests you should translate it fat. So this sort of like abundant burgeoning sense of goodness uh, mm. that nothing can be added to i really like uh, all the ways that that brings in extra sense than you know in good can be such a flat word in english um, but the hebrew word is is much larger in its scope and so that's that's the world everything that is made is tov mm. i really like that um that the old phrase for talking about uh, an abundant land and the, the fat of the land uh, yeah, yeah. Which is it's probably exactly for, that sense. You know, we live on the other side of excess and heart disease, and people see fat as bad, but in most cultures, um, fat is something that you want more of. Yeah, yeah. And so we've got this this fat world in that positive sense, um, but it's also orderly. We see that it's beautiful and it's teeming or it's swarming with life. You know, those those images of the sea or the or the sky where the birds and the fish are just filling up the space, and when God finishes that work of creation, he sits back and he says, it's all tov mode. Mode meaning very or exceedingly. So it's very good, very fat, very pleasing, very beautiful, very bountiful. And then this is where the Sabbath economic stuff really comes in. God rests. And that word for rest, again, is basically the word for Sabbath. Sabbath is almost you like the noun version of that verb. So he Sabbaths. God's Sabbaths at the end of creation, and that just means to stop or to cease in this context. And so the seventh day has no end. It's called holy and blessed, even in the text, because that's the day that God rested on. So the purpose of, purpose of Sabbath can't be, oh, well, we just rest so that we can work more, which I hear a lot in my circles. You know, the main value of rest is it restores you for work. In the Hebrew context, in, the, in that first chapter or two, rest is for its own sake. Rest is a good in itself. And then we come to that second chapter, or, you know, some people would say it's really the first chapter because it might be the earliest account. Is that right? Oh, well, I mean, that I think that's that's generally a view that, uh, that the second creation story in Genesis chapter two is the older of the two. Um, and it's, mu it's much more down to earth literally, as well as uh, it's it hasn't got this sort of cosmic scope. It's much more like, all right, here we find people and the land. Absolutely. So in, in the in the second uh, creation story, Adam 
uh, is created from the Adama, and uh, Adama means the uh, not dirt as it's often translated in our uh, many of our Bibles, but means the soil, the red, rich soil, um, so full mm. of teeming with life and uh, bioorganisms and all this sort of stuff. The fat soil. Yes, the fat soil. Adam is a creature of the soil. Adam from the Adama, the human from the humus. Um, and that's how the, the pun plays in, in the Hebrew. And so, you know, when we're asking who are we as human beings, we're, we're these soil creatures, earth creatures. We're made of the stuff of the earth, which is um, helps change your perspective on things a bit, I think, uh, in an over-spiritualized uh, sense of christianity that that we are earth creatures mm, mm. Uh, it is is a very opposite reminder um and there's a lot going on in this too um but um it's for our purposes that let's cut to the chase to the to the the job that adam is given when he's placed in the garden god pla- uh, places adam in the garden and gives him a job and we talked about it that in the recent podcast which one uh, uh, on vocation yeah the last couple we've done uh so here we're we're so adam is given a vocation and the the framing is to work and to keep the garden uh and in hebrew the words are a bud uh to work it which means to work for or to serve it uh more accurately and to keep it that the hebrew word there is a really rich term shema which means um uh, so it can be translated to keep you and it has the same meaning as in the blessing of Aaron. May the Lord bless you and keep you, uh, which means sort of to nurture, to protect, to raise up to full full potential. Uh, but it also has the meaning um, to observe. So the same word Shema is used it when it says, observe my commandments, observe the Sabbath. Uh, and it has a twin meaning, just as it has in English. It means, in one sense, um, follow the rules, stick st- stick within the rules. Uh, but also, if you're going to stick within the rules, you have to observe them. You have to look at them, study them, and understand them to know where the boundaries lie. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, and Ellen Davis, uh, in her in her rendering of this uh, suggests that we could translate this little verse as Adam is placed in the garden to serve and observe it, uh, which is uh, a wonderful rendition, which, which suggests that foundation foundational to the human vocation on earth is this idea of observing limits, which means staying within the limits of the, the creation, which we've been given. And that requires paying watching closely paying careful attention to the the natural world in which we live and trying to understand it Mm, it's kind of that sense of a shepherd with the flock it's like you you watch but you also keep it's that kind of close attentive careful engagement yes yep and so here we have another uh beginning of what 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 the a core theme of what will become uh we're, we're talking about as Sabbath economic, which is, Sabbath economics, which is the idea of observing limits. Um, so the story plays on through Genesis uh, chapter three, and that sort of takes a negative turn. Uh, where in Genesis chapter three, they're in the garden, and 
they're given one limit, which is to eat of anything they like, but not this one tree, the, the fruit, uh, the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. And we're mm. told in the in the text that right at the core of the temptation for Adam and Eve, uh, in why they end up uh, falling for this temptation and ignoring this limit, is they want to be like God, uh, which is, <laughs> in one at a very core sense, a denial of limits. Um, so that right at the beginning, what they're doing is is they're failing at their they're breaking a limit. And they're wanting to deny limits. And the other way we can think about that in wanting to be like God means that they're also in denial of their creatureliness. And I'm sure we've talked about this before in this podcast, that in denying their creatureliness, that they are creatures, that they were created, they're sort of rupturing their relationship with the creator, with God. And they're also rupturing their relationship with the rest of all other creatures, because we're saying to all other creatures, we're not like you. Um, Mm. And right from the outset there in Genesis chapter two, 3, it records that at that point, um, the earth uh, uh, begins to see damage to it. Uh, so human sin results in damage to the relationships between Adam and Eve uh, and and then also immediately to their relationship to the land itself. And we just see that get amped up through the story of Cain and Abel and as the, as the story progresses. Mm, and it's fascinating that as a result of breaking that limit, the land actually becomes less productive or maybe even less, the fat is less accessible to the yes, human beings. Exactly. You, by, by going against what God said, it actually becomes worse for you to try and get what you were trying to get anyway. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. Which seems to resonate so much with actual experience, doesn't it? Mm, mm. And I remember Myers says later in his book, like, it becomes almost this addictive compulsive work that we then think, okay, well, there's not, it's not so easy to get the stuff of life. So we need to work extra hard and we need to hoard it and we need to like really seek it as first, first preference, first job. Yeah. And so that brings us really, I guess, uh, is a good segue to bringing us to that next key moment in the, the Sabbath economic story, which is the, that archetypal story of, salvation and liberation for the Israelites, which is their their um, deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Um, which you could hardly think of an example of work gone more wrong than slavery. Exactly. So that's, um, um, that's where, where do we find them in Egypt? Uh, we find them as slaves, uh, which is precisely their condition. And, and Ched tells his story really well. And if you hear him uh, talk, he'll likely... Um, He'll likely break, get you break into singing uh, an old Negro spiritual at some point, uh, you know, where people in real slavery were, were looking backwards to this story and looking forward to their the time of their own liberation. Um, and it's all, all very stirring stuff. But for us, and I guess the key details of this story are um, so that the Israelites find themselves in slavery, which is in Egypt, which and their condition is a... Um, uh, that of bad work uh, for under bad conditions for bad purposes. So what uh, Exodus is quite specific in in the what they're doing. Um, a lot of people think they're building the pyramids. They weren't. Um, ex- <laughs> Exodus, uh, the pyramids are already ancient by this stage. Um, Exodus says that the Hebrews uh, slaves are building Pharaoh's store cities, and that that little detail will become important later. 
and we know the story. You know, Moses comes up to Pharaoh, says, let my people go. And and he bugs him and he bugs him and he uses real bugs. Uh, and <laughs> eventually uh, the Israelites uh, make a break for it uh, and cross the Red Sea. We all know the story. It's all um you know, famous to Sunday school stories, really. Um, uh, and that's sort of how we treat a lot of this stuff, too. Uh, that's where these stories really belong. Uh, and they get to the other side uh, of the Red Sea and they're free. Uh, they're free of Pharaoh and they're free of slavery, but they have a problem. What now? What are they supposed to do? How are they supposed to live? Exactly. It's the basic economic problem. How are we going to live now? Um, and so, you know, the, 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 the fascinating part of the story, um, which again sort of seems to ring true to our ongoing experiences, that uh, they start to think back to their time in Egypt and say, well, actually, we were slaves there. Wasn't it better that we at least knew what we were going to eat? and where it was going to come from while we were slaves, rather than be in the wilderness and not know what we're going to eat. Um, and so it's in this context that the Israelites are given uh, a new economy, and this is the story of the, the manna in the wilderness. Which is another one of those often relegated to Sunday school stories that uh, we maybe don't quite get the full thrust of when that's the context. Exactly. And, and um, I'm sure we've talked about this before in this podcast as well, but it won't hurt to do it again. Uh, it is a foundational story of biblical economics, and it's really, I guess, been foundational for, for this ministry as well. Uh, so the the story goes that uh, the, the Hebrews are given manna that comes down from heaven, heaven um, and it's called manna. It uh, comes from the, the, the Hebrew word what is it? It's sort of like, huh? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> um, they don't know what it is, uh, but it's uh, it's food and it's good food. It sort of it tastes sweet to the taste. It sort of gives me an impression of um, uh, I get the impression of um, the lembas bread in in yeah, Tol that's right, of Lothlorien <laughs> in, in Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, um, yeah. And we um, Sam ends up grumbling about the lembas bread eventually, doesn't he? Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, much like the Israelites, they yeah. get kind of sick of it. Yeah. So this is a new, it's a, it's a an economy of provision. We sort of sort of have left the Sunday school meaning at that point that uh, when we're in need, God will provide, um, you know, and that's it. Um, and that's, well, that's there. Sure. That's, that's a big part of the meaning, but actually there's much more. Uh, so in particular, they're given rules. The manna economy comes with rules. Uh, so the rules are that you'll uh, go out daily to collect only what you need and you're not to collect more than what you need and store it up. So the second rule is don't store it up. Uh, do you know what happens if you store it up, Jacob? It goes real bad. It goes like, what is it, moldy or moth-eaten or something? Yeah, it goes rotten. Goes uh, yeah. So stored manna uh, turns to rotten manna. Um, and the third key rule is that they're to collect uh, manna or limbas <laughs> six days a week uh, and then on the seventh day they're to rest they're to observe a sabbath uh, and this is a key rule so on the sixth day they collect twice as much it'll last for two days on this on this occasion uh, and they're to have one day of rest hmm. so these these three key rules and and that's it's 
critical, so we pay attention to what they're, they're being told, to go out and only collect enough for that day and to not store it up. So what have they been doing? Uh, they've been working to build Pharaoh's store cities, these massive storage places, which are the basis of uh, Egypt's incredibly powerful uh, but highly unjust and unequal society. All Egypt's rotten wealth. All Egypt's rotten wealth, and they've been enslaved to it and where they have to work every day uh, uh, under really harsh conditions. And here they're being commanded, you must make sure everyone rests at least one day a week. And, mm. um, you know, we're people who are so used to a two-day weekend, we don't really understand uh, we don't get how radical our industrial relations policy this is in the ancient world. In fact, uh, most cultures have only ob started observing anything like a day or a week of rest, let alone two days a week of rest in the 20th century as an impact of the spread of the Western way of doing things, which is ultimately all comes back to these stories. Um, mm. Yeah, so uh, this is um, radical stuff in the ancient world. And it, it sort of goes to what we'll talk about later in the Hebrew Bible also, that like sometimes we read these stories where laws are given or rules are mandated and we go, oh, well, that's that's a nice idea or it doesn't it just prove that, you know, God has your, your good in mind or something vague like that. But if you zoom into what these laws are really getting at in their context, there's so much in them that is instructive for what life is about and where life is to be found. Yeah, yeah. And the, the key the key message, the key point of the manor economy, um, one of the key points uh, of the manor economy, so that it's given those three rules, is given in the description of it, what it should look like uh, at the end of the day is that none shall have too little. The idea that everyone's going to have enough, there will not, not be any poor among you mm. uh, in this economy, but also that none shall have too much. And there also is a radical idea. So we all Im immediately understand the importance of none shall have too little. Uh, but the idea that none shall have too much, that is um, that is another really big idea, which is uh, going to shape what Sabbath economics in the Hebrew Bible looks like. Uh, this idea of none shall have too little none shall have too much. This is also going to be one of the core themes we're going to see uh, being developed. Mm. And that's in the law, right? That those books of the Bible that most of us dread ever hearing preaching on or certainly reading in our own time, things like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, some parts of Exodus as well, Numbers. Yes, all those fun books that people just... Um, uh, it's good, good cure for insomnia, right? If you, you know, you know, um, if you're not able to sleep, just turn to uh, numbers and uh, start reading through some numbers. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, um, I mean, it does just have this sense of dry, outdated, uh, potentially even just weird and unintelligible, arbitrary even rules or regulations for Israel's life that hardly seem to have any application to us today. It does. It does. I mean, we should put it in its context to start with. Um, so I'm, I, I think we can break. It is always going to seem that, that a bit strange to us, but we can break that down a bit, I think, um, 
Uh, we should put in its context, though, according as the way the story is told, at least um, in. So there's the first five books of the Bible, the books of the law in Hebrew, it's the Torah. Uh, the way the story is told is that after their um, their liberation from Egypt and they're wandering around in the manna uh, and Moses starts to give them the law. We know they go to Mount Sinai, they receive the Ten Commandments and so on. Uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, um, they end up spending 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, and over that time, they've been given the law and then they give it a second rendition of the law, which is in Deuteronomy. Um, and, you know, it turns out it was... Um, easy to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it was much harder to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Uh, mm. It takes 40 years for that to happen. Uh, and all that time they're being instructed. So we talk about the Torah as the law. Another way you could translate that word is the instruction, um, the guidance. You know, this is something, uh, a frame for life, wisdom for life even. Uh, it has that sense, which gives it a quite a different feel from the rules, which is how we uh, tend to hear something like that. Um, mm, or even like the, the kind of boundary markers for life, as we were talking about limits before, like the guide rails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so that's, um, that's what's going on. And that's what we're going to see, uh, where we're going to see the rest of these ideas of sabbath economics coming out here so now before we get into that i know jacob that like you had uh, you've already mentioned to me that you know there's uh, reservations that people have by by going here at all into these sort of old testament laws yeah i mean and certainly they're used uh to great detriment when people quote them sometimes out of context but even even in context it seemed like you know you and i were batting them around beforehand and there's a bit in deuteronomy 23 for instance where it's saying some things that we would really like uh so like slaves who have escaped from their owners shall not be given back to their owners oh great that seems like a good rule yeah. none of the daughters of israel should be a temple prostitute none of the sons of israel should be a temple prostitute okay sounds great very next verse you shall not charge interest on loans to another Israelite. Interest on money, interest on provisions, interest on anything that is lent. Not only is that a law that we don't subscribe to in our society, although previous Christians have, it also seems to come out of nowhere. It's just like this kind of list of things that to us are completely unrelated and almost like comically unrelated. Hey, and you missed you, you actually you put you took all of that out of context, Jacob, because you missed the previous two laws that came before the the freeing the slaves. Oh yeah, go on. The the first one, which was if you have a wet dream, you need to go outside the cl the camp and clean yourself, and if you you need to take a crap, uh, make sure you take a trowel and dig a hole and bury it. Don't leave it lying around. Well, I mean that does seem like a good rule. <laughs> Oh, it's a good rule. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, like that's bookending the stuff about slaves and temple prostitution. And you think, well, what is going on here? It all seems just a bit weird and random is what you're saying. Yeah, I think for many people reading it and like for us as well, like some of it just is going to be weird because it's from a society very far away in both space and time and outlook. And some of that's not going away, that weirdness. <laughs> can we do any? Can we can we do anything else with the rest of it? Uh, yes, I think we can. Look, I, and I think I, I, you're exactly right to say there's a huge gap of context between us and between them, uh, and 
between economic conditions, the way we live, the the you know the the daily structure of our lives can can uh, not even to mention the sort of religious worldview, cultural background, blah blah blah. You know, there's such a huge gap. Mm. Mm. Uh, all these uh, bridges we need to try and cross, and we're not going to get all the way there. So it is going to be weird. Um, and it's it's sort of cool. I mean, we should remember we're looking back thousands of years into time when we read this stuff. It's like, um, I, I you know, we're so used to just reading it as the Bible. You know, it's just this book that's printed, and it's often a reasonably new book. It's printed. You know, we uh, actually what it's sort of like is you know we're, we're Indiana Jones who's abseiled into a snake pit. Um, Mm. Uh, crypt and discovered an old bit of ancient text, and we're we're glimpsing something from another world, um, yeah. you know, which is uh, uh, it's strange and weird and wonderful, and but there's secrets hidden within it uh, that w- uh, we need to know. So, like, how should we, if if we're not to see the law as just this arbitrary set of random and useless for us uh, instructions or rules, how should we better get our head around what we're reading? What is it that we're dipping into? Yeah. So, I guess um, one way of thinking about it, I think this is a helpful way of thinking about what's going on, is what is being given to the Israelites in a whole lot of brushstrokes is a vision. It's a vision of life, uh, and it's a vision of life in the promised land, uh, the place that they've been promised since the time of Abraham, Uh, and it's described as the land of milk and honey, the land of abundance, the land of the good life, the fat of the land. In fact, I think that's where that term comes Mm. from. Well, you can't think of much more fat than milk and then the sugar from honey. It's like this sweet fat. You know, that's the good stuff. Yes, and so... um, so it's uh, what we find is a whole bunch of stuff that, sh- in one way or another, for an ancient agrarian uh, society, people who have been livestock herders moving into forms of agriculture, we, we're finding a whole bunch bunch of instructions that cover the whole of life. It's not relig- We tend to think about these as religious rules, but they're all sorts of rules around. Um, so there's some religious stuff around worship and then how they conduct it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff around what we might call situational ethics. If this happens, then you need to do that. There's stuff around cleanliness and holiness. And some of that has to do with religious purity, but others of it just seems to be about hygiene. And we don't always know where the difference lies between those things. Um, But much of it, a great deal of it, and some of the really important stuff is economic. It's about the structure of material life, how they structure their relationships to each other, and how they relate their production relates to the earth itself and the land and and all of that stuff. Um, so that's what that's what we're getting. And so I think it helps to have an idea of that vision in its broadest brushstrokes. And that's sort of what we get. I think what's useful about Ched's uh, framework of Sabbath economics is he gives us a framework for for unpacking some of the key themes that really help us interpret. Uh, the really important stuff of the Old Testament. Yeah, it's a it's a instructions for all of life, which therefore 
includes so much about how we spend our time and our energy, what we do with the land, with the resources that we have available to us, how we interact with other people, all that sort of stuff. That's right. And what should be important for us and and is not to get hung up on these being rules, because um, certainly that's not how um, what in the New Testament, Jesus takes up these ideas, the ideas of Sabbath economics. Um, we won't go into all of that, but actually they're a big part of the underpinning of what he talks about, but he doesn't talk about them as rules. They're really, he's he's taking the vision and breathing new life into it, into an entirely new context. And that's what we should be looking to do is to to catch the vision, catch the spirit that's behind it and see how that can translate into our world. Hmm. All right, so take us through some of these economic themes. We've got the Sabbath, we've got the weekly cycle of work and then rest. We've sort of covered that. How does it extend from there? Well, I think that's so really important that the idea of Sabbath provides a structure or a cycle and a framework um, that sort of gets unpacked in different ways in different directions. So as you've mentioned, um, the first underpinning is the, the weekly Sabbath where everyone rests and we again, just think of that, have tended to think of that, uh, and that's been influenced by how later history has panned out, um, that seventh day as being this really boring religious day. (laughs) (laughs) When actually the vision of, I think, what it's meant to be a day, it's a day of healing. You know, we spend our our six days a week in hard work where damage is being done to us and to our relationships and maybe to the land itself, and we get a day to stop reflect to heal um it's a to be holy that's how it's defined that the seventh day shall be holy and right at the heart of that meaning of of holiness is wholeness you know putting things back Mm. together so it's a it's a day for wholeness um for 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 patching things up uh so that i and it's also means as we've also mentioned it's it's a placing a limit on work so there's a statement that work is good. So Adam is given work to do when he's placed in the garden, but there's a limit on work. If you work, don't stop to work, then work becomes bad, becomes a curse. And that's what they that's what they had in, in Egypt. So that the next Sabbath cycle that we see happening uh, that's uh, is a seven yearly cycle. And this is most famously talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Uh, and it's a seven yearly cycle of debt remission and release from slavery. So in the ancient world, um, uh, slavery was um, not only common, but it was, you know, for many cultures, the uh, foundational to their economic life. Um, and you could get slaves in different ways. You can get them through war, you know, uh, through through prisoners. Or through debt slavery was the other really common way. If people fell into debt, one way to clear their debt was to become slaves. Um, so that was uh, practice amongst the Hebrews as it was throughout the ancient Near East. Uh, and But what they institute for uh, amongst the Israelites, this is to be practiced among themselves, is that any of you who, who fall into slavery... Uh, are to be released every seventh year. So there's, um, so and the instruction is given, the reminder that you were liberated. Remember, you, God saved you from slavery. So this should never be a permanent condition for you. It doesn't prohibit slavery uh, in Deuteronomy. Uh, it's different when you get to Le- Le- Leviticus, but we won't go into those complexities. 
but it says there needs to be limits placed upon it. And likewise, debt. Um, so it says, um, acknowledges that people may need to borrow from each other. Uh, and debt is an important uh, part of helping us get through life, but there needs to be limits placed on it. So every seven years, uh, debt should be cancelled. Um, so that's the next the next cycle of sevens. And then the third Sabbath cycle is we find in the Jubilee Laws of Leviticus 25. And I, I do recommend, if you have never read this stuff, to, to go and read it. Read Leviticus 25, read uh, Deuteronomy 15, read Exodus 16, the story of the manna in the wilderness. These are all foundational stories. Hmm. So in, in Le- Leviticus 25, uh, what is being commanded um, uh, the Israelites is to first observe another cycle of seven and here uh, seven years um, every seventh year the land is to be given a rest as well this idea of an enforced fallow so you can have seven years uh, six years of production but the seventh year must be a a year of complete rest for the land Um, and the people are allowed to live off what land just produces of itself nat- naturally, uh, but it's got to be allowed to just uh, produce its own things, and that's got to be made, and that's therefore people to live off, um, you uh, and for the widow and the orphan and the alien, but also for the wild animals of the land. So this idea of ho- being hospitable to the to the whole of of creation, and and needing to allow for the place of everyone. Uh, within the human system of production. So we need agriculture, we need human production, but it needs to have limits placed upon us. And there seems like there'd be such, uh, I mean, we, we might get into it in a bit like, is this practical and did the Israelites actually do this? But you can start to see how much trust is involved in living that way that the earth does actually have enough for you and enough for everyone else that you don't need to work all the time and exclude others from your patch in order to get enough for yourself. Yes. And and that's where this whole thing, I mean, so a lot is founded on your disposition to others and to the cosmos, I, I guess. If your basic disposition to the cosmos is one of fear and you assume that the cosmos is a harsh place to live and uh, and it's out to get you and other people are out to get you, then you're going to do work as hard as you can to store as much as you can, uh, you know, uh, and to to back yourself up as and to protect yourself as much as you can. But if you think uh, creation is basically hospitable and abundant, and that human community can also be hospitable and, and abundant, and you can practice that, um, then that's an entirely different disposition. Hmm. Hmm. So the Leviticus laws goes on because there's the first cycle of seven years, but then they're also to count out a Sabbath of Sabbaths, seven years of seven years, which is 49 years. I'm um, remembering my high school maths there. Uh, And then it's pretty nice and neat that that 50th year is the one where it's the big one. Yeah. So so count off 49 years and on the 50th year. Any land that has been sold out from a family is to go back to its original family. And to to get the meaning of this, we have to go back to the contexts of um, in particularly numbers. And we also hear about it in Joshua as well, 
how the... Yeah, so this is where all that boring stuff comes in. <laughs> exactly. All those numbers. <laughs> what What's important to all those numbers in the book of Numbers is that the land is being divided up to all the different tribes and to all the different clans and to all the different families. So everyone basically gets their own patch of land. It's this idea of broadly distributed uh, property that everyone who's a part of this community has to have a stake in the land because that's the basis of, of livelihood in that society. And everyone needs to have their own basis for a livelihood. So in the Leviticus laws, if you've lost that somehow through bad luck, bad harvest, or you've gone into debt, um, every 50th year, you get restored to your land. So land can't accumulate over generations in the hands of fewer and fewer people and you have this growing inequality what we have is this systematic process of leveling uh so that everyone gets to to reset uh, that's the vision at least mm. stored manor goes rotten if you build up lots and lots of land it's no good for anyone yeah so clearly we get the idea that this is um i mean this is pretty visionary stuff right um mm. you know for for any world uh so some of these ideas uh, of both debt remission and land restoration are things that we you find um, in the ancient world and been around for a while. But what we see them being taken up in this story is given a, a, a systematization and an underpinning moral and ethic, which is, is new in the world, essentially. Mm. And that, that idea of extending to everyone includes the animals, it includes the poor, it includes those who have lost their land in the interim between the jubilees. There's, so the, the different elements uh, of, of this, uh, the Sabbath, of the, the laws that are given do provide a hospital to, hospitable to everyone in, in different ways. So, so to, to go on further in, in the, the laws of debt and credit, we, uh, we should mention that um, as well as uh, debt remission, there's a, a pr prohibition on charging interest for in uh, in lending to uh, a fellow Hebrew, although they are allowed to charge it uh, to foreigners. And I think we've probably talked about that on a previous podcast at some time. It's a curious little law. Uh, so you're not allowed to charge interest, and that's um, th we've got a, what what's really going on there is a is a horror of of making a profit from someone else's need. It's not really, this is not for what we think about mostly these days, commercial lending or anything like that. That's about for people, provide, lending to people who are in need and then making a profit from them. So that's like if your land got bogged during the harvest and you lost your crop or that's something right. like that, right? That's right. It would be, um, which is actually why, going back to, you know, those Deuteronomy rules, uh, we, were, we were having a little bit of a laugh at before, uh, the common theme in all those, it's, they seem completely random collection of, of rules, but actually the common theme uh, to that we find that prohibition against interest on is things that are disgusting mm. to the Hebrews. So the, the charging of interest fits in a collection of things which represent disgust to them. Um, mm. with Temple prostitution, wet dreams. All that sort of stuff. Um taking a crap <laughs> it, it it that's where it fits in their mind um different way of seeing things to us yeah um anyway uh going on you know in the laws of agriculture there's laws about harvesting uh so you can't harvest uh to the edge of your land there's so there's even limits 
to use of your own property. So you you have property rights in your own land, but you don't. It's not your right to harvest 100% of what it produces. Why? Because there are other people who have a claim to some of that, and they include uh, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, that, those who don't have their own land, and also the wild animals. Um, and likewise, uh, the Sabbath laws apply to animals as well, so that the, um, you can work with an animal six days a week, but the seventh day, it needs a rest too. Um so they extend far and wide this idea of observing limits in our dealings with people, with animals, um, and with the land itself. Hmm. So, all right, tell us about tithing and first fruits. This kind of you leave you leave stuff for the poor and for the animals. You also give some stuff away. Yeah, uh, so there's this idea of the sharing of abundance. Uh, so again, the, the tithing and the first fruits, um, they're seen as religious offerings, and they were, they're, they're donations to God. But actually, what the way we see them playing out is they're being shared amongst the community, particularly the first fruits offering. Uh, it's like a big feast in which you invite all the widows and the orphans and the aliens and the Levites, that those who don't have their own stake in the land. Um, and it's a way of sharing the surplus of the community, um, so including another form of structured uh, provision for those uh, who don't have enough, um, as well as provision for, in this case, the Levites, those who have a different function within the community, uh, and a way of underpinning their role as well. Mm. And am I right in saying that, like the giving of the first fruits, you know, it's the first harvest, the first portion of what you get from your land. It's another participation in that trusting that the land is abundant. There will be enough for everyone. You can give out of your first lot rather than from what you've got left over. Yeah, it's a really important statement, isn't it? Yeah, I, it, that that's that's entirely right. All right. So that's the vision, broad brushstrokes. And as you read on in the Bible, you get the prophets indicating that this wasn't always the case If it <laughs> because they're constantly critiquing adherence to these laws and saying you're not keeping the sabbath and you're doing this you're, you're oppressing the poor you're not following the rules you're not keeping to the vision and as we talk about how potentially idealistic this stuff is it's easy to see how mm, did this ever actually happen people have sometimes said that israel never practiced this what do we say about it well the the story as we get it itself in the histories um says that you know things uh unwound for Israel started to unwind pretty early. I mean, it goes uh, right back to David and Solomon, particularly Solomon. Um, you know, we, uh, we there's no hint of these laws being observed, really. Um, and things get can get worse from there with some, you know, brief moments of things going in the other, other direction. But it, yeah, as you say in the prophets, um, there's uh, basically continual, um, you know, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Amos and Micah, especially, and Hosea, um, you know, in different ways, they're looking back to a vision that they've been given and saying, we're failing this. Um, you know, we're, we've walked away from the way that we've been called to live. Um, uh, and it go they're again and again going back to these basic issues of debt, of credit, of land, and the treatment of workers and wages and things like that. Um, and that's all bound up in the questions of idolatry. They all go go together. 
Mm. I guess the pushback I've heard sometimes is that it's it's just simply not practical, you know, like it might be a nice idea, but of course when when it actually comes to Monday you've got to do business. And so, you know, of course Israel never practiced this because it wasn't practical. Yeah, so I guess I mean there's it sort of depends what we're wanting to do with this. If we're wanting to see this um uh as again go here's a bunch of instructions or rules that we need to somehow translate into our updated rules for the 21st century economy um then we're going to struggle um but what i think again the most helpful way to think of this is a vision and i think that's probably the most helpful way to think about the place it occupies within our biblical canon as well mm. um so as you you know people have said well did this stuff ever happen um, we don't like there's evidence that, uh, for example, laws of debt remission were practiced to some extent. We don't know to what extent or how widely uh, there's we don't really know if the Jubilee laws were ever really full, practiced or to what extent um, and, and so on. And other bits of uh, we know the prohibition on usury was uh, observed to varying levels at various times. Um, uh that was it was a more important one, but um, essentially what we're being given here is a vision, and the question is, can we catch that vision and try and live by its spirit in whatever way we can in the conditions of the world in which we find ourselves? And I think mm. uh, that's what we find Jesus doing in quite a radical way. So when he says. Uh, right in the middle of his Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us. Uh, right in the middle of the Lord's prayer, uh, putting, uh, bringing the Sabbath economic framework of Torah right into the middle of that and sort of letting it loose to go in a hundred different directions in the world. Uh, you know, Now we read that and we think about it in all sorts of different ways, as we should, um, how can we, we we be re-inspired by these visions and not think about them as just rules that we have to follow, that God said we have to do this and therefore we need to do this, but actually uh, catch what we're being pointed to as what is good, what is a good way for humans to live and what, when are we being redeemed, when are we being made whole, what is good for the earth, what is good for us and for, for you and me, and our neighbors near and far and how do we in what form of life helps us connect best to god as well mm. Mm. yeah so it's no it's never going to be a one-to-one -one translation but there are there are some economists and some theologians who are doing some work in our context around something more of this model observing those limits and thinking about what's good for everyone and what's the whole of life integrated into in our economics rather than just um a narrow portion of that paradigm uh i know that kate raworth i haven't read the book but she's done work in her book donut economics where she's talking a lot about uh how do we structure things so that the limits don't get blown out in any any one particular way what else is being done what else can we think about your book coming home uh all about on the practical household level, how do we apply this stuff? You can get that from our website. Where else do we see this playing out as possible applications in our context? Look, I think those what 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 you've pointed to is 
you know, the core elements that we take uh, from this vision of life is um, uh, firstly a vision of the goodness of the material world uh, and that we can we can and we should treasure it. Secondly, the call that for to to maintain its conditions of goodness, we need to observe limits. Uh, we need to serve and observe it. We need to know how it works and we need to stay within its bounds. Uh, and we need to place limits on our own use of the earth, use of ourselves in work and use of each other. Uh, and, and so goodness always exists within limits. Um, that idea is critical. Uh, and that that includes, you know, how, how we think about things such as property rights. I think that the Hebrew, I, the way in which uh, uh, it conceives of pro even property rights being limited uh, by this uh, a bigger social purpose and a bigger ecological purpose is something that we're needing to recapture. Um, these are the challenges of the 21st century, really. Um, how how do we shape our economic systems so that we can observe limits for the ongoing sake of a planet uh, and therefore our own uh, sake as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a fitting note to end on. Thank you, John. I hope you guys listening enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you did enjoy it, send it along to a friend. Keep that conversation going. And also, if you could, please review us on whatever platform you got your podcasts on, whether that's Apple Podcasts, even if you don't use Apple Podcasts, that's a good one to go to, Spotify, whatever. In the meantime, if you want more good news economics, check out Mana Matters. Mana Matters is the quarterly publication of Managum, and it's available for free online at managum.org.au. Managum is a ministry funded entirely by donations, so if you'd like to support what we're doing, that same website is the place to go, managum.org.au. Thanks to everyone who has donated and does donate to what we do. We'll leave you with a quote from that book we've been talking about by Ched Myers, Biblical Vision of Sabbath Economics. He says this to frame the entire discussion he's going to get into. He says, at its root, Sabbath observance is about gift and limits. The grace of receiving that which the Creator gives and the responsibility not to take too much, nor to mistake the gift for a possession. Thank you, John. Thanks, Jacob. We'll see you guys next time. Thank you.